Welcome back to Unchanging Education. So this is sort of a turnaround episode here. I'm launching season two, where I'm going to get into more of what you might call a, a literature review, a review of the literature that's relevant to the conversation. And this will be a first chunk. Here I'm looking more at background figures. And this will be a shorter episode today because... Uh, I just want to tie up some loose ends from season one, things that I kind of want to situate here at the beginning, or things that I, I feel like I haven't fully articulated. And then I just want to have a fairly brief discussion of who I consider to be the two major background philosophical thinkers here, Locke and Rousseau. Locke is writing about education uh, around 1690, so obviously we're, we're going pretty far back in time. And I want to try to situate Locke as the background figure for teacher-centered philosophy. Versus Rousseau, who's writing about education about 50 years later than Locke in about 1760. And I'm going to situate Rousseau as the background philosophical figure for student-centered pedagogy. So just giving like a, a peek to look ahead of what I'll be discussing and, and who I'll be talking about here in season two. After Locke and Rousseau, I'm going to skip about 150 years to come up to some you know bigger names in, in education. Prob thinking chronologically, we're going to come to John Dewey, who's writing um, you know around 1900 and into the 1930s, and Gramsci in the 20s and 30s, and I'm going to look at a lesser-known writer, Stearns, the, again, in the, in the 30s. Um, not really a, a writer, but um, there's a, a one particular speech, an address, given by Lippmann in 1940. And so mostly for this first chunk of, um, of the literature... It's mostly occurring in the 30s and 40s. So that is kind of the sweet spot for this, for season two. And it's going back just more than 100 years to where I think the conversation was still fairly even. And we still had something like this, this idealized version of teacher and student-centered still... Um, basically still talking to one another and both exist and as i believe both are making each other better they're you've got different thinkers on different sides that are keeping one another sharp and in check uh, bagley is probably the figure that i'll be talking about the most 
and I'll get into, I'll kind of, I'll be talking a little bit about Bertrand Russell today, but that's more from the, the history of Western philosophy, and I'll be coming back to Russell later with more specific education-based um, work in a, in a later Season 2 episode. And the other two figures I want to mention off the top are Hege and Hutchinson, who are writing in the 50s. And so after we get up to about, you know, the mid-1950s, then then my plan is to wrap Season 2, which I think will be something like 15 episodes. So that's kind of the sneak preview of where I'm going and what I'm trying to do. So why don't I jump into these loose ends and try to wrap up some some kind of general comments and then look a little bit at Rousseau and Locke, uh, not too not too deep, not not in too much detail. Again, just trying to situate some background philosophical figures. I think that that'll I believe it'll help to ground the conversation. Okay, so thinking about education today and these different philosophical orientations. Education could be seen as a disciplinary institution. Certainly someone like Foucault, post-structuralists, would see education as a disciplinary institution and would see that as a problem. A disciplinary institution implies a kind of training, which, I, in my view, teacher-centeredness would ultimately accept these as true and as, I suppose, as facts of life. That, yes, um, teaching and education, they do, I mean... They do require discipline, and they are an institution. To what extent does that make education a disciplinary institution? I certainly, uh, I don't think that that is, you know, the essence of it. But perhaps someone like Foucault would, and and I think a a, a Foucauldian mindset would align with student-centered uh, philosophy. I believe. But I think that to a lot of teachers, this would violate their own self-concept of themselves as teachers. See, I'm not a disciplinarian. Uh, it, may, it may be that education is a disciplinary institution that's predicated on training children or training citizens. But I'm an exception. I mean, my, my classroom is all about free and creative inquiry. And I think there's a concern here, or a teacher-centered critique, would suggest that this is something of a dodge, insofar as instead of grappling with the difficult question of how to use my authority as the teacher, as the, the authority in the classroom, how to use that effectively, but also benevolently, is a very hard question. It's much easier just to say, well, no, I'm... I'm, I'm not a disciplinarian, I'm not authoritative. And the, the student-centered, again, sort of postmodern idea would be that I, I avoid this whole question, I avoid this whole problem by giving power away 
Now, in a, in a weird way, I'll use a couple analogies here. But this, well, this refusal to acknowledge this fact that the teacher is, you know, is the authority, it's the, the disciplinarian, it, it, the teacher is the power in the classroom. And, and as such, the teacher is the one who's most responsible for things that go on in the classroom. So we can think of teacher and student centered here in terms of the way in sports, we often talk about coaches, different coaching styles. And this is divided up into neat um, TCSC compatible categories that you have the old school disciplinarian coach and then the new breed, which is often referred to as the player's coach. And coming, bringing it back into the world of philosophy, there's a, a philosopher named Zizek who talks about two different types of fathers. He talks about the old school authoritarian father, uh, I suppose you could say more of a patriarch. And he gives the example of um, family visit. Okay, uh, the, the parents are taking the kids to go visit grandma or grandpa or both. And, you know, the kids, they, they don't want to go. They're resistant. They're reluctant. Maybe they find it boring or disagreeable or whatever. And the, the old school father will say, you're going. You don't have to like it, but you're going to go and you're going to behave. And, you know, I suppose spend a couple hours there and then we're going to come back. And that it's... It might seem heavy-handed, but it's also fairly blunt. And Zizek thinks that there's also something very honest about this, right? That you can resist, um, you don't have to like it, but it, whatever, it doesn't matter. And then he contrasts this to the so-called tolerant or enlightened postmodern father, who instead of just saying, no, you're going, and, in, you know, you're, you're going to behave, that, well, you know how much your grandmother loves you. Nevertheless, you should only go if you want to. I'm not going to force you to go. And so the idea here is that this apparent free choice is an even powerful command. That not only do you have to go, but you have to like it. And it also removes this place for psychological resistance that, well, you know, I don't want to do it, but fine, I'll do it anyway. It's like, no. So the idea here is that the authority is there, whether one wants to acknowledge it or not. But by, but by trying to behave in such a way as though one is not the authority, Right, this this apparent this paradox of free choice that is not a real free choice that it's that only conceals a more powerful command. When authority is concealed in this kind of way, it in a strange way is even more powerful. It might seem superficially to be a free choice where I'm not telling you what to do. But 
secretly I'm, I'm telling you what to do and how to feel about it. So another way to contrast this very simply is to say, well, to hear a parent or teacher say something like, because I said so, doesn't sound very nice. Again, doesn't sound tolerant or enlightened or certainly not postmodern. But if we think of that as being in contrast to, well, I'm not going to make you do what I want you to do. Instead, I'm going to make you want to do what I want you to do. And again, it, so in a sense, this is an illustration that's meant to reveal, like one, when an authority is trying to conceal itself, and then when you unmask that concealment, you see an even more potent form of power operating. So I think that this... I think this is an interesting interesting example, and I think it can tell us something about teacher and student-centeredness. But I don't think it maps onto it perfectly. But I think it's illustrative of something, that there's something there that we can take out of these examples. Okay, so another point that I wanted to, to make is that, well, it's hard to talk about education because it means so many different things. Right, there's, basically, there's early childhood education. And we also use K-12, to which obviously would, would seem to overlap with early childhood. And there's also the university. But even before early childhood education, I suppose, there's still parenting and, and socializing. Parenting or child rearing. And... So when we talk about education, that encompasses everything. And the first or the basic element of education is socialization. And obviously we've seen big changes in parenting style over the last... Well, I mean, parenting is constantly changing. But a, a laissez-faire uh, sort of let it be or are kind of a, a freedom inclined style in in socializing parenting it's in a way we could say it's it's more postmodern or it's more therapeutic but again we come back to this idea of of discipline and training as words that that we don't like or we may not be comfortable with and uh, let me just reiterate that are we going to confront the ways in which these ideas make us uncomfortable and figure out how to how best to deal with them? Or do we really think that we can sort of make them go away? Insofar as kids need rules and boundaries. Not just that, you know, an authority that makes the makes or sets rules and boundaries, but also enforces them. Which which also means you know, like a, a positive reward, praise type structure for when when they're when they're followed, but also yeah, um, again authority, discipline, something like training. And we we might have a a kind of a bias against this word training. The first thing you might think of is dogs. Are we training our kids to be obedient like dogs? 
a lot of people wouldn't even really, you know, taller postmodern types wouldn't even really be comfortable with this idea of training a dog and taking away its freedom or autonomy. But we can't write off, you know, discipline training as just being really bad or being oppressive or repressive. I think the trick is to learn how to do them well. And, you know, training obviously, I mean, obviously it applies to humans. Everything from, you know, toilet training, potty training to, you know, this is, it seems that training as a word has probably overtaken exercise again people think of themselves as you know or or i guess people that are really into exercise would probably describe what they do as training and there's also you know a, a training of the mind is certainly an appropriate way to think about education again starting from socialization so Teachers, in a way, have to become comfortable with the fact that they are the authority and that they wield a disciplinary power. So, for example, for example, let's say if uh, you, you you catch a student cheating on a test. I mean, you, you wouldn't confront them in front of the whole class. You would confront them privately um, and kind of say, well, look, I mean, you were... You know, I saw that you were cheating. What, you know, explain yourself. And the student, let's say this is a high school student, begins to cry. Now, you might have an emotional reaction for yourself that you feel like, well, I just want to, you know, you want to make the pain go away. You just want to, for example, you might want to give them a hug, tell them that it'll be okay. But you have to be firm. And that that takes a toll on you, right? Whether a teacher or as a parent being firm and not giving in um, when you know that in a way giving in can alleviate the discomfort in the, the, the person that you care about. Basically, you don't always get to be the good guy in relation to the student or the pupil. So... Teacher-centeredness would certainly say, well, obviously, discipline and authority are necessary. You can't be, you can't be a tyrant. I mean, you, you have to learn how to use these things effectively. And, if, and, and, and students need to respect that authority. And I don't think they need to fear the discipline, but I think they need to have a sense that in a way it's inescapable they need to have a sense almost like a, a, a disincentive that I know that if I do what I shouldn't do then there will be consequences just as if I if I do well there will be good consequences good outcomes rewards for example But in relation to a, a student-centered or a, a child-learner-centered um, for SC, increasingly, I think, or maybe, maybe, maybe let's say for some, discipline and authority are seen as optional. They're probably seen as in that old-school model of teacher, and you know, I'm not that type. 
Um, or we might say at the very least discipline and authority under a student-centered model would be regarded suspiciously as if the teacher uses discipline and authority just to enact cruelties upon children. So here I want to make a note in the vocabulary. I mean, I'm, I'm using teacher and student, um, but there's also a, a, in the vernacular, in teacher jargon, you hear increasingly learner and child, not student, and certainly not pupil. Pupil has really sort of gone out of fashion. So I want to take a couple minutes just to think about the the meaning of these words and the implications. And I looked into the etymology a little bit. So student suggests a painstaking self-application. Painstaking self-application, student. In the sense that it's being a student, studentship, is careful and thorough. But again, not painful. Painstaking here is quite distinct from painful. And this may be all the more essential in a thermostatic view of education. Thermostat just means you you adjust the, the temperature, that if the culture is one way, education should be the other way. Kind of a balancing or offsetting idea between education and culture. So if, stu if, if the student, outside of their role as a student, is not engaged in a lot of painstaking self-application outside, then we should have more of that in school. This also suggests, you know, the other side of, uh, again, this, this teacher-centered in relation to a student or a pupil. A pupil is, can also be thought of as a, as a ward, as, a, as an individual that is in your charge that you have to guard and protect. And both, in both of these cases, student and pupil, they both exist in relationship to a teacher insofar as it's a didactic relationship that the teacher teaches and the in relation to the teacher's teaching, the learner learns. Now, these the other set of terms, specifically child and learner, have a different meaning, I think, in student-centered philosophy. So what is a learner? Sounds like the exact same thing as a, a, it certainly seems just to be another word for student, right? But learner implies autodidacticism, which just means that you, you can teach yourself. You can learn from yourself. Self-teaching, self-learning, so to speak. So you can be a learner without a teacher, right? A learner doesn't have to exist in the context of a, again, of, of, of a didactic duality or dyad. Learner does not require a teacher. A learner can be self-taught, of course. You can learn without a teacher, but you can't be taught without a teacher. So in a sense, using this term, it undermines this teacher-student didactic. And I've also indicated earlier that I'm slightly suspicious of the use of the word child, because I think child makes me think of the think of the children 
fallacy and that it triggers this emotional nurturing response. Now, certainly that's, it's valid to think of wanting or, or that we need to, you know, we need to care for children. Children, you know, they, they demand care from adults. So if, if being a, a child learner, it doesn't really require a teacher to be teaching them per se, then this is where we get into something like inquiry. Inquiry, which basically means students decide what they want to learn about and then they go about learning about it, teaching themselves about it. And further, this implies this tortured cliche of the teacher learning as much from students as, as, as they from them. Okay, the other figure I want to talk about who's a really important inspirational figure for me, someone who, who wrote a lot about culture and a little bit about education, is Philip Reif, one of my great professors from the University of Ottawa, uh, recommended this book to me about teaching. Well, you could say it's about culture and education. It's called Fellow Teachers by Philip Reif. So um, let me just go through, uh, you know, some, some important points from an essay about Reif. And again, trying to continually trying to shape the contours of teacher versus student-centered. And I'll be quoting here. Virtue was not taught explicitly, but reinforced implicitly through cultural institutions. See, there's a, you notice the past tense here, okay? Virtue, what we think of as character education, in such a way that it shaped the habits and instinctual desires of each successive generation. In so doing, the underlying sacred order provided a powerful means of opposing social and cultural decadence. Similarly, individuals learn to identify themselves and find meaning in life. So learning about virtue and that this is passed on, that we have to shape habits and desires. One of the front lines of the contemporary battle is the notion of truth. There's a new perspective. Again, let's just, let me start inputting my terms that this new social center, student centered perspective abolishes truth, leaving only desire. So we're here, we're aligning. It might seem, it might seem sort of uh, self-serving, but virtue and truth, these would, in this case, align with teacher-centered education. Desire proves to be as fierce an authority as any god, and jealous to boot. Nature, after all, abhors a vacuum. So, the throne on which God once reigned does not remain empty. It is filled with the more erratic God of desire. So this indicates uh, Nietzsche and the death of God and the need to replace him. 
and the importance of following desire and seeking pleasure that certainly for Rife is central to a therapeutic culture. Rife thought that our society, that, that the biggest and most important change in his lifetime, certainly, would have been this rise of a therapeutic culture. And to me, I'm mostly thinking of it in the context of how this therapeutic culture affects education. The chief desire in our new culture is, according to him, sexual. And this desire demands freedom of exercise. Again, coming back to this God thing, this replacement, uh, the death of God and the need to replace what was God with a new kind of God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is kicked out the front door, while the God of sexual desire is whistled in through the back. So this is really, this is writing about culture, and instead of, instead of thinking of it in terms of, let's elaborate the way that we might think about sexual desire in terms of what our, a new culture is predicated upon. We could think of it instead of as unrestrained eros, or, you know, following, again, just following passion and desire, even hedonism, right, the pursuit of pleasure, as quite distinct from having this, this virtue of delayed gratification. And under a, a hedonistic kind of philosophy, certainly an adherent would follow passion rather than following reason. Reason and passion have, have, have a long-standing um, you know, distinction, one from the other. So we must articulate and embody seemingly defunct notions of truth and virtue. Like if we want to, if we want to re-situate truth and virtue as having been de-emphasized for the sake of desire, pleasure, freedom. And this is a formidable task in our radically disenchanted and morally permissive culture. Okay, I think I'm almost at the end of... Yeah, last quote here. Rife thinks that what we need to do, or what, what needs to occur, is that we, in a, in a cultural and in an historical sense, arise to manifest the beauty of the thou shalt and thou shalt not. When you read Rife he often uses a, a term interdictory um, which really seems to mean a culture that's predicated upon what you should do and what you shouldn't do that there are powerful rules of what a person must do and must not do and it, and it it's sort of firm against any kind of transgression Right, that you you should do what you should do, you should not do what you shouldn't do, very simply. And that there's less, you might say, less tolerance for breaking these things. Right, that we need to uphold what people should and shouldn't do, rather than 
that it should be more static rather than constantly shifting, renegotiating, renormalizing all of the all the things that are good, true, right, etc. Reif is also famous for describing himself as an inactivist. And I think that that suits this teacher-centered mode. Teacher-centered inactivism that seems to posit some kind of uh, sacred sacred authority that that underlies or undergirds the social. The, the, the sacred is a transcendent check on the social. And it's it, it also manifests as a present authority. So in this case, objective truth is much, much more significant, much greater than subjective desire. Subjective desires, again, which would have a lot of purchase in a therapeutic situation, here don't. Here we care about objective truth. We don't care so much about subjective desire. And what we'd like, um, we do have a need to control behavior and an interdictory thou shalt, thou shalt not structure maintains. And that this is thought to uphold and to serve a sense of virtue or morality. Contrast this to a student-centered activism rather than inactivism. And that the, the social is total. There's a social totality. There's no transcendent check on the social. And interestingly, I think that what, what is predicted in, in abstract in theory of what will happen, and I think bears out in practice in terms of what does happen, is that the social becomes its own pseudo-sacred zealous and fanatical secularism. That there's kind of a new, um, I think this is, this is sometimes described as making a god out of the state or the government is this new thing that we have to be loyal to and worship to an extent in the absence of any other authority, right? So some, any kind of sacred transcendent authority would be absent, right? Again, no transcendent check. And in this mode, subjective desire is, is greater than or more significant than objective truth. Certainly, if there is no objective truth, if it can't exist or isn't possible, then it's, again, objective truth along with any kind of sacred transcendent authoritative check. If those things don't exist, then, of course, all we're left with is something like subjective desire. Again, instead of the interdictory, thou shalt, shalt not, there is a permissive therapeutic sense that any, any enforcement of what people should and should not do uh, runs the risk of being repressive. That it's, that it's, it's too controlling, therefore it, um, it undermines people's wellness. And instead of virtue morality, this would be this would indicate vice or decadence. 
decadence is isn't always clear uh, and just in terms of what it means i think in this sense we're talking about an indulgence in pleasure that is following pleasure in a way that aligns with the therapeutic worldview that you should you know you should you know follow your dreams and your passions and basically do whatever you want to do certainly there's, there's a place for that it sounds great right okay so i think in terms of all the loose ends and it's again the whole first season those first five episodes i'm i'm doing what i kept describing as establishing the idea this is all just an introduction to the idea whatever the idea is and again to to recap tvsc um bringing teacher centeredness more into into prominence to balance out kind of a runaway student-centered pedagogical takeover and to have ultimately to have these different ideas in education uh, reflect a heterodoxy or a diversity of ideas all right so those are the loose ends and i just want to talk about rousseau and locke and i'll jump right in so rousseau you may be familiar with uh, his, his sort of most famous line is that man or humans we are born free but we are everywhere in chains and this Locke and Rousseau are often associated with the social contract theory or the, the philosophy of the social contract and the most obvious philosophical contrast to someone like Rousseau would be um I think believe would be Hobbes who is probably who is as pessimistic as Rousseau is optimistic in seeing humanity as a war of all against all and uh, life as, you know, nasty, brutish, and short. If we take an evolutionary view in education in, in terms of the opposite of someone like Rousseau, who, who thinks that the way that we're born simply in terms of uh, that, that we have a, a good nature, so um, we're looking at these background philosophical figures, uh, again, Rousseau for SC and Locke for TC, we kind of have to step back into thinking about human nature and the relationship between the human and the world. So I think that an evolutionary view of the child as a primate, insofar as, as every child is a born criminal, certainly would violate a Rousseauian or a student-centered way of thinking but it's just meant merely as descriptive it's not a condemnation that you know every child is evil it's simply the it's just descriptive of the fact that no one is born as law-abiding because they haven't been taught they haven't learned what the what the laws or rules of a, of a given society are so this sets up this contrast between Again, this, this obvious philosophical contrast between someone like Rousseau is very optimistic, or you could even say kind of romantic, uh, in terms of thinking about human nature, versus someone like Hobbes. But I'm much more interested in, in how the ideas play out in education, and I think the more interesting educational contrast is between Rousseau and Locke.
Um, so last point about Hobbes is that, you know, we don't need a Leviathan, which is a, an absolute power, certainly not in education, nor do we simply need to let nature run its course and let free play reign. And again, I think that Locke, even as much as he embodies a teacher-centered philosophy, also suggests a, a, a balance. Of course, we need control, we need order, not just in society, but in education or even for teachers in a classroom, but not too much. That order and control are ultimately are ultimately good things as long as they are limited. And Locke, uh, so for example, to an American audience, Locke's ideas should should fit quite well, insofar as his thinking um, really seems to fit in with the major American documents and and basically philosophical movements behind American Revolution, the Declaration of Independence, and the Constitution. Locke probably more than anyone emphasized this liberty and property. Okay, so coming to thinking a little bit more about Rousseau. Rousseau thinks that we we don't really need to focus so much on habits and establishing habits for children. That we're better off letting children follow their own inclinations. Again, to me, it's very student-centered. It suggests inquiry, right? Even going back hundreds of years here. And the best thing that we can do is sort of follow nature. And there's an idealized image of nature here, right? And, and that we should not interfere with it. Again, a laissez-faire approach. And the idea, again, I think, is that too much training or trying to inculcate habits may only serve to corrupt the good nature that's already there. And Locke would have the exact opposite view. right? This is um, coming from a, a really good essay by Genotsos, writing about early childhood education and Locke and Rousseau. So for Locke, habits would be would be prominent or more important and preferred over merely following or letting children follow their own inclinations. So we're setting up habit and inclination here as a, as a dichotomy. And then Locke would certainly be for or in favor of training, right? That we have to basically train children into good habits for, for Locke or for a teacher-centered approach. Whereas for Rousseau and, and SC, um, we want them to follow their own inclinations and we're, we're not very invested in, in training specific habits. Okay, so Genistus notes, uh, in, in her essay notes, Gabrielle Compare, who further argues, quote, Rousseau's naturalism rejects both the use of society for training and the use of habits. On the one hand, no commands are to be given to the child. On the other, he is to be taught nothing. Hence, no moral authority, no material discipline in the child's upbringing. Now, that sounds really far-fetched um, that, that someone like a, a mainstream philosopher would, would have this view that no commands are to be given to the child. He is to be taught nothing. 
no moral authority, no material discipline in upbringing. But I think to the extent that this is a, an accurate representation of Locke's thinking, sorry, of Rousseau's thinking, it only reiterates how he viewed nature, that he really deeply viewed humans in, in being born um, as, as being not only free, but also being so good-natured that we're like these benevolent creatures in a way, right? This really romantic, optimistic view that um, if you don't interfere with the way that we already are, we'll be good, right? And that it's society's training uh, or the habits that we pick up and learn that are, are corrupting or even corrosive. So taking a step back even further, um, this, is, this changes things slightly, but another way to think of the contrast between Lockean, TC, and Rousseauian SC is to think about equality and liberty, which is probably a more primal philosophical um, or at least at least in terms of political philosophy debate of um, the importance of liberty in terms of being free within society being free from which also called negative freedom being free from oppressive restrictions imposed by authority so liberty here is almost a a, a particular understanding of freedom And but this sense of liberty, I don't think is it's it's altogether different from simply the power or scope to act as one pleases, like a acting or doing what you please seems to me to fit more in with inclination, student centered. But so, yeah, so I think both of these ideas, these are both ways to understand liberty. And I think they're both in play here, perhaps perhaps is slightly confusing um so in 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 more probably familiar terms thinking about liberty um the individual person is um is empowered and also responsible right this power and responsibility thing and so this loosely this this equality equality versus liberty distinction fits with the familiar political distinction that you know of having less external authority uh, and having a smaller government is good for liberty which i think runs or bumps up against a notion of the importance of something like equality or even if we go so far that equality at all costs and equality if we think of equality in terms of that people should have, I guess, if they should have access to the same material goods and income and social status, um, access, again, suggests opportunity, um, whereas equalities has this more extreme version of equity. Not only should we have access to the same you know, goods, income, and status, but we should all have the exact same goods, income, and status, and that it should be 
controlled by an external authority, by a by something like big government. So the only way to achieve something like total equality, again, we're thinking of socialism, communism, what, what they might call redistribution, which would, you know, obviously violate a, a notion of, you know, personal liberty or certainly uh, libertarianism, right? If you want to think of, of I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that people are more familiar with a lot of these, with that these ideas as they play out in politics is going to be more familiar to the average person than how they specifically manifest in education. So libertarianism for liberty and um, socialism for equality. I think that, again, that all... I'm trying to draw these uh, allegiances between teacher-centered pedagogy and Locke and being for liberty um, versus student-centeredness and Rousseau um, socialism and being for equality. Okay, so the more centralized government authority there is, the less individual power and responsibility there is, that these things are negatively correlated. So, bringing it to education then. In, in a teacher-centered model that is more based on something like individual liberty, also the, the power and the responsibility of the individual. Basically, I think if you fail, then that's on you. That, you know, you were, you were given the opportunity to pass or fail, and whichever you do is ultimately a reflection of, of you, of what you did. You, sometimes your teachers will use this phrase, you know, I didn't fail you, you, like, you failed to say you failed yourself seems seems kind of harsh, but um, you know it's saying I'm I didn't fail you I'm just I'm just sort of this neutral arbiter of you know the the standards and expectations, right? Um. But the but under the under a student-centered mode, I think that there's a sense that this is not the case, right? That when students fail. We we need to start asking how the system failed them, because if some people are passing and some people are not, then that's obviously it's not equal, right? I mean, we're, not everyone is having the same outcome. I mean, not everyone is getting an A, right? And and some people are may may you know fail or could be failing a course or failing an individual assignment or, or whatever. But again, in the teacher-centered Lockean liberty model, when the individual has a lot of power and responsibility, if you fail, then that's on you. Uh, whereas in a Rousseauian, equality-based, student-centered way of thinking, if you fail, then we start, we start asking questions about the system. So again, high individual responsibility seems to me to coincide with teacher-centeredness. Uh, whereas a focus on a system that that if an individual individual failings can be explained by a failure of that system that didn't ensure that that person succeeded, and that this to me speaks to an inequality rather than a liberty based philosophy, and it's going to have lower individual responsibility, 
where it's placing that responsibility on the system to ensure equal or equitable success outcomes, something like that. And so we're going to have very different answers to questions like, well, why do some people succeed in education and some people don't? The liberty model will just say that, well, individuals are totally different and some people are really good at school and some people aren't. Um, versus, I think, a, uh, a, a student-centered, certainly an activistic, okay, teacher-centered, thinking back to Philip Reif, teacher-centeredness is more inactivistic, student-centeredness more activistic. Um, so trying to answer why do some people, some people fail, it's an unequal system that pre-selects its winners and losers through privilege or by systemic inequality. But again, coming back to TC, I think that there's an acknowledgement that, well, the system may be equal or unequal in different ways. Um, you know, for example, some, you know, some people are going to do well in math, some people are going to do well in English, but, you know, we're going to have high and low achievements simply because of human difference. Um, and that respecting liberty and, and acknowledging that there are always going to be really sharp limits on, on how much equality is really possible. And on some level, yeah, so for, for TC, this comes down, to, again, just to the individual, not to the system, right? That people make choices and they have their own priorities and not just as not just as atomized individuals, but also as, um, you know, as members of families. Um, you know, some, some parents put a real premium on academic performance and some don't, right? And things like this can, again, two, two very different ways of thinking about, you know, success and failure or, or um, degrees of achievement or attainment in education. Okay, so let me t talk a little bit more about Rousseau. And I'm going to reach into Bertrand Russell's history of Western philosophy. And I also want to make, draw this line from Rousseau to Dewey. So in the section on Rousseau, uh, in my version of the history of Western philosophy by Bertrand Russell, I'm on um, 695. And this is a short paragraph here. Although the book as a whole is much less rhetorical than most of Rousseau's writing, the first chapter opens with a very forceful piece of rhetoric. Quote, man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. One man thinks himself the master of others, but remains more of a slave than they are. Liberty is the nominal goal of Rousseau's thought. But in fact, it is equality that he values and that he seeks to secure even at the expense of liberty. So the idea here, I've already been talking about liberty and equality a lot. Um, and so Russell is telling us that Rousseau certainly does care about liberty, but that he would be willing to trade in liberty for equality, which is something that certainly Locke would not do. Um, 
Perhaps that, that's, that's well evidenced by the importance that Locke places on private property. If you're going to have a, a really strong belief in private property, there's, there's I think, going to be a natural limit on how in favor of equality you're going to be as well. Okay, so let me jump. Let me just stay in the history of Western philosophy, but let me jump all the way to uh, what Russell says about Dewey. And then I'll talk a little bit about Locke. And then, um, and then I'll kind of wrap up for today. Okay, so in my version here, the section on Dewey, 8 to 7. Dr. Dewey's world, it seems to me, is one in which human beings occupy the imagination, the cosmos of astronomy. Though, of course, acknowledged to exist, is at most times ignored. His philosophy is a power philosophy. Though not like Nietzsche's, a philosophy of individual power, it is the power of the community that is felt to be valuable. It is this element of social power that seems to me to make the philosophy of instrumentalism attractive to those who are impressed by our new control over natural forces than by the limitations to which that control is still subject. So Dewey's philosophy is a power philosophy that's much more enamored of the ways in which we can exercise new controls over our reality, over the world, perhaps through community, but that it tends to it tends not to attend to the limitations of what we can control. And so this, this is important on the next page here, and um, the last paragraph here. In all this, I feel a grave danger, Bertrand Russell writes of Dewey, Dewey's philosophy. The danger of what might be called cosmic impiety. The concept of truth as something dependent upon facts largely outside human control has been one of the ways in which philosophy hitherto has inculcated the necessary element of humility. And so when you focus too much on power and what you can do with it rather than what we still cannot do, you can become, you can run afoul of cosmic uh, piety and, you know, and offend it with this cosmic impiety, in Russell's words. And uh, you lose humility, continuing, quote, when this check upon pride is removed, a further step is taken on the road towards a certain kind of madness. The intoxication of power, which invaded philosophy with Fichte, and to which modern men, or modern human humans, whether philosophers or not, are prone. So we're prone to a madness and an intoxication when a check upon pride is removed. Pride comes before the fall, so to speak. I am persuaded that this intoxication is the greatest danger of our time. And that any philosophy which, however unintentionally, contributes to it is increasing the danger of vast social disaster. Uh, 
Bertrand Russell is, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I, I would put him in the pantheon of capital G great philosophers. And uh, so it's not too surprising that he's taking these liberties. I mean, this is a, you know, a history of philosophy, but here he's adding in this warning of a danger of, you know, how dangerous a particular philosophy could be, which is, uh, which may seem a little bit strange in a, in a history book. Um, which I think is in some ways, maybe we had expected to be more, more like, more like an encyclopedia. Uh, another interesting note about Bertrand Russell is, is even though he's talking about cosmic impiety here and, um, you know, rem removing pride and, 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 you know, losing humility uh, by not recognizing limitations and that the, the madness and the intoxication that results from this is the greatest danger of our time and that it increases the danger of vast social disaster. I remember when I was first learning about Russell uh, as an undergrad, my professor actually was Professor Hunter, the same professor who, um, who got me into Philip Reif. Uh, he described Bertrand Russell as the village atheist of the 20th century, I believe. Um, but despite that, um, yeah, he's got this, uh, it, it almost seems to be a kind of a, a principle that almost seems like a, uh, in defense of monotheism in a way, humility, pride, impiety, madness, intoxication, danger, disaster. Okay. So let me talk about Locke, um, and then, and then I'll wrap things up. Okay, so this is coming from the locks. Some thoughts concerning education. And three secrets emerge in the text. And I've reordered them from what I find to be from the simplest one to the most complex one. Um, okay, so let me just start. Actually, I'm, I think I'm starting with the most complicated one, just to kind of get it out of the way. So, quote, quoting from Locke here, okay. Um, to avoid the danger that is on either hand is the great art. Okay, the great art or the great secret. To avoid the danger that is on either hand. And he that has found a way how to keep up a child's spirit, easy, active, and free, and yet, at the same time, to restrain him from the many things he has a mind to do, and to draw him to things that are uneasy to him. He, I say, that knows how to reconcile these seeming contradictions has, in my opinion, got the true secret of education. Okay, so there's a lot here. So what is the true secret of education? What is this this kind of this this sort of ultimate secret of education? Well, first it's combining um well, I mean it, it really speaks to liberty, right? That we do want an, an easy, active, free spiritedness, but while at the same time restraining people from all of the frankly the bad things that they want to do. 
And so, uh, you know, you've got this tension between um, freedom and restraint. But at the same time, you have to find a way to draw people to things that are uneasy. I think this really just kind of means the opposite of easy. Difficult, challenging, arduous, disagreeable tasks. To make, in this case, to make kids, to make students want to do hard things. And this this can be achieved in any number of ways. I mean, for one thing, kids are sometimes competitive with, with one another. You might have a competitive cohort and, uh, you know, they're all competing with, with each other. It doesn't matter how hard it is, right? They, they're focused on, um, they enjoy the competitive aspect of it. Okay. So Locke is obviously focused on a disposition, right? That's, again, easy, active, and free-spirited. With restraint, okay, that you can't simply act on desire or inclination. And I think in these restraints, we can think about um, that we are... That there's a sense of training and a sense of habits here that would be absent for Rousseau, absent in student-centeredness. That you can't act on desire or inclination, that it's not really about following pleasure in any sense. And this other point about to draw a student to things that are uneasy to him, it seems to be he's saying that we need to inspire a sense of ambition in students. Um, that they want to think and to do better, and they want to, they want to overcome more and more difficult challenges. Keeping the learner well disposed, but self-disciplined and eager for more learning. So, put another way, perhaps the best, the best way to put this in, in contemporary terms, is the ideal student here is cool and collected, but also curious. But I also think that this. This disposition, um, when we talk about restraint, uh, I think that restraint bumps up against student-centered therapeutics, right? That, um, that, that, that the person should be extremely expressive, right? And, uh, you know, really wearing their heart on their sleeves, so to speak. So restrained. Um, and, and really kind of, I, I guess, I guess under control in a way that is not prioritized in therapy, that there's a sense of just, you need to let your emotions out, which is, you know, different from restraint, obviously. And that the spirit should be easy, active, and free. To me, this is a lot different than something like activism, which is kind of this emotional response to injustice that is, you know, that's that follows passion um but it's not really like it doesn't really seem easy and free right that there's a i mean sometimes uh in in the context of education you hear this word grievance um that that we that we need to fix a broken world and this this burden of you know fixing a broken world through activism and through the um you know through the natural inclinations of, of, you know, young people. I don't think that that, that, that to me seems like the opposite of this easy, active, and free spirit. Um, so therapeutic education and activism, to me, in, in, in a student-centered mode, are, I think, the opposite of this disposition that Locke is articulating. Easy, active, free, and yet restrained from many things.
And this other part, again, being drawn to things that are uneasy, um, being curious in one's ambition, uh, I think being eager for more learning. I think that's distinct from student-centeredness as well. It makes me think of uh, the phrase of comfortable discomfort, that um, you need to be in an uncomfortable situation, almost like you're, basically you're, you're pushing your own limits and you're trying to kind of overcome your, your, own, your limitations. But not, not, not so much that it's actually painful. Again, studentship should be painstaking but not painful. Right? It should be exact and exacting. And as I indicated, this point runs counter to a too comfortable therapeutic situation. Education may be guilty of seeking to institutionalize. So, reordered. A student should be well-disposed and eager, um, but calm or well-mannered as a model student. Where student-centeredness may be too focused on the child's spirit, easy, active, and free, that it doesn't want to restrain him from the many things he may want to do. And it may struggle to draw kids to things that are uneasy, right? If you kind of indulge this easy, active, free spirit too much uh, without those restraints, then you may fail to excite children about the difficult challenges that, that school should, should provide. Right, the intellectual stimulation. Or again, um, you know, talking about activism and, and therapeutic education um, seems to be almost the opposite of what Locke may be describing here, at least in my interpretation. Okay, two, the other great secret. I'll talk about three secrets here. That's the first one. The other great secret. When we can get rewards and punishments once to work, the business, I think, is done, and the difficulty is over. Esteem and disgrace are, of all others, the most powerful incentives to the mind. So establishing and maintaining effective psychical disincentives and incentives is the game, okay, the whole ball game. And I'm focusing here on the difficulty is over. Well, you know, what, what makes you know, training so, uh, the kind of, uh, what makes teaching so hard? Again, inclusive of things like uh, training and discipline. Well, the, the most obvious one uh, to me is that rewards and punishments are, are different for all different students. Right, so uh, I always think of the example of reading. Um, that you know, you might say at the beginning or at the end of class, you might have you know five or ten minutes of reading time, right? Silent reading, something like that. And you know, it's an arbitrary example, but you see some kids are like yes, and they grab their book, right? Uh, and and some kids are oh, like it's, you know. Like it's a, it's a reward for some kids and a, and a punishment for others. So it's very hard. I mean, certain classes will take on their own kind of personality and that there are ways to reward or punish an entire group. It can be tricky. Um, but again, when you're, 
dealing with different individuals um, who have different motivations, different incentives are going to work or not work. And you might say that in a therapeutic situation, the, the problem could be something like excessive esteem and deficient disgrace. Okay, of course, limitless, like self-esteem boosting and sort of unlimited encouragement in this therapeutic spirit. I mean, we think of encouragement as being universally good. The same way that we think of change as being good, but of course changes aren't always good. Some things change for the worse. Same thing with encouragement. Um, you don't want to encourage things that are you know, bad or unwanted behaviors or attitudes because uh, anything you encourage, you would expect to get more of. And things that you effectively discourage, you, sh you, you think you'll get less of. So uh, encourage is important, but only in terms of encouraging good things. Obviously, we don't want to encourage bad things. So more encouragement is obviously not always the answer, right? If you're constantly encouraging a child, then most likely you're also encouraging um, unwanted tendencies. Uh, I've talked a little bit about esteem, and uh, I think that this this traditional or this classic sense of esteem is that you know when you it's it's inherently social, and um, it is the reward structure, right? When you do good, you are uh, praised or lauded by, uh, you know, by some authority or by a social group, by parents, whatever. And the therapeutic twist on esteem uh, comes along, like thinking of esteem as a well-established, long-standing um, social feature. And a therapeutic society inserts self into this, that... Um, it's, it's, it de-emphasizes the way that other people think about you and uh, puts a, a, a new premium on the way that you think about yourself as arguably as the most important thing. And the other side of this, um, thinking of esteem as reward and disgrace as punishment. Again, I think this is going to be, um, you know, any all the sort of new age feel-good philosophy type educators that we produce are not going to be comfortable with something like disgrace. Um, you know, anyway, it's it's an old word and an old concept. Um, so let me come let me come back to Locke, and, and I'll, I'll touch upon disgrace in a moment here. Uh, quote, I grant that good and evil, reward and punishment, are the only motives to a rational creature. These are the spur and reins, whereby all mankind are set on work and guided, and therefore they are to be made of, made use of to children too. So wait a minute, not only are we talking about disgrace here, we're also talking about spur. Well, I mean, obviously there's the physical spur that, you know, makes a makes a horse go right this metal spiky thing um but you know to spur as a verb um you know i think may also be indicated here right in the same way that free like that the reins free reign um anyway i don't certainly there's no reason to believe that Locke is 
actually being literal here with using spurs. Of course not. So if control is an offensive term to postmodern pedagogues, then disgrace, punishment, right, spurs, uh, will be beyond the pale. But teachers have to be tough-minded, okay? Even if you don't like to think of yourself as an authority who sometimes is disciplinary and doles out punishment, right, that, and in your capacity as a disciplinary authority who has to have access not only just to reward and encouragement, but uh, to, to punishment and to discourage, that this can inflict um, an experience or a feeling of disgrace in a student. And even if you don't like or want to think of yourself in that capacity, what you, like your own self-concept as a teacher is quite inconsequential. You have to remember that a teacher is... Uh, again, you're, you're acting on behalf of the state, that you're a civil servant in a sense. And you're not there to relate or orient to students in the way that you would like or the way that you would prefer. It's really all about what the student needs. Do students need to be punished and disgraced? Is that what I'm saying? I mean, it sounds so... Um, I think... There's something really honest about the way that we have to think about, yes, I mean, the teacher is the one who's in power and is responsible for everything and is responsible for rewards and punishments and in and, and, and different forms. Um, but obviously, it also has to be controlled and it can't be, you know, it uh, shouldn't be violent, obviously, or abusive, traumatic, cruel. Like, there's a way to wield power effectively and to avoid all these extremes and to fail to make these distinctions. Um, it's almost like just wanting to opt out of, as I discussed earlier on, I'm just going to opt out of my own power and authority. And no, I'm not an authority. I'm not disciplinary. And I, I'm not the one with the power and authority here. We all share it, right? We're a democracy. I just, that's the way that someone likes to think about it and likes to talk about it, but there's no way that that's actually the way that it is. And so then in addition to not learning how to use power effectively, there's also just something dishonest happening. Okay, so teachers have to be tough-minded to withhold esteem uh, and apply punishment and be willing to disincentivize unwanted attitudes and behaviors. Right, especially insofar as they disrupt classroom learning. Right? Sometimes when a student feels bad, it's good that they feel bad. Right? I use the example of catching someone cheating and they start crying. Of course, you know, it's a it's a you know, it's a young person who's, you know, crying and feeling bad and you want them to feel good, feel better again, but you also don't want to undermine the natural consequence that's playing out. Now, all of this should be, you know, rare. I mean, it's not like every day. <laughs> I mean, if you're punishing people every day, then obviously something is going wrong, right? But the, the point here is not that it's, it's sort of a common thing. It's that um, you have to be willing to go there because in, in so doing, you are proving that the rules and boundaries are, are firm. They're not negotiable. And, uh, and that you care enough about your own rules, expectations, 
um, that you are not going to compromise on them. That you're that that you're willing to go far for what you have said and what you seem to believe should be. Okay, wrapping up block here. And certainly again, self-esteem. An obsession with self-esteem and every kid always needs more self-esteem. Um, it would mean that no kid would ever need disgrace. Obviously, I understand the extremely negative connotation of some of these kinds of words. Again, this is luck. We're going, you know, this is hundreds of years ago here. So let's, please, let's try to be charitable and, uh, and, and see the value of what he's saying underneath. Okay, the third secret I think is very intuitive, but I think absolutely worth, worth mentioning, or else I wouldn't mention it. The third secret, quote, to make the exercises in the body and the mind the recreation one to another. Beautiful articulation here of the mind-body balance. Okay, to risk a cliche, one immediately thinks of a yin-yang type symbol. So when the mind is exhausted, it is energized by the work of the body. And when the body tires, it is rejuvenated via the life of the mind. So I'll read the secret again. To make the exercises in the body and the mind the recreation one to another. Okay, so those are Locke's three secrets, or the three secrets uh, behind or animating uh, teacher-centered philosophy. Um, okay, well, it seems that this is my longest episode so far. I thought that I could wrap this one up pretty, pretty quickly, but uh, again, I'm still learning how to gauge how long, how long a, a certain amount of, of content will take. Okay, so I'll wrap things up. I'm going to start practicing and, and trying to use the bell to start and finish every uh, every podcast. So we will come back, and I think the next, just trying to follow the chronology here, I believe that I'll be coming back with Gramsci. And it might seem a little bit confusing uh, to some listeners because Gramsci is going to fit or coincide in the next episode with a conservative approach to education, which is going to be really strange for any viewer who's familiar with Gramsci. Um, so, uh, you know, quoting from a, a, a book about Gramsci, Antonio Gramsci is one of the few Marxist theoreticians to have considered the role and nature of education, yet, paradoxically, his revolutionary political and social theory for example, Gramsci is synonymous with hegemony, seems at odds with his conservative approach to the content and processes of schooling. Um, again, I think, I think that the history of conservative or teacher-centered education is so neglected that no one would even be aware of how conservative the thinking of Gramsci could be. Uh, it's, I think it's potentially an interesting illustration. Okay, so I'll, I'll wrap up here. Uh, thanks very much for listening. I appreciate it. And I'll be back in a couple of days with uh, Gramsci, Dewey. We'll see how far we get into Stearns, Bagley, Lippmann, even coming back to Russell and finishing off with Hige and Hutchinson in this season two. Okay, thanks very much. <laughs>